Hey everyone, welcome to No Experts Allowed. Before we get started, I want to remind everyone, check out our website, new website, www.noexpertsallowed.com, and just in time for the holiday rush, if you have concerns about supply chains, have concern no more. Get your favorite No Experts Allowed merch at our website. We got some sweet new stuff out. We'd love for you to check it out and support the podcast. I've got a really important question for you, buddy. What would you do in this particular situation if you had to get rid of one sport, like erase it from existence, what sport would you erase? It's not really an either or question. There are a lot of options, but I'm interested in your answer to this one. What sport? Man, this is hard. No, I'm going with golf. Wait a minute. Oh, man. (laughs) Sorry. Like, what other sport? I'm here for you to drag golf. I'm ready for it. Come on. (laughs) What other sport uses absurd amounts of natural resources and is practiced primarily by people who have a lot of privilege, who just want to drive around in little carts, like, think about how many just f- football fields you could make out of one golf course. Mm, so glad you want to advocate for more concussion arenas. Congratulations. <laughs> Although, to be fair, do you know what the word golf means? No. It was originally an acronym, and it literally means gentlemen only, ladies forbidden. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it meant at the start. So, yeah, not a great heritage. I do love golf. But love it with a lot of uh, mixed emotion <laughs> because of all, literally all the things that you mentioned. I don't. I don't know though. I feel like there's part of me that wants to say football, but I'm on this really recent kick against baseball, and I love baseball. Like baseball was my thing growing up. I'm a lifelong diehard New York Mets fan. It's one of the few like real strong sports allegiances I have. But this. Winter, you know, they're voting for the Baseball Hall of Fame. And Barry Bonds is on the ballot, potentially for the last time in, like, the normal election process. And I'm just, I'm really frustrated over the whole steroids thing. Because baseball was dying. No one was paying attention to it. And then some guys did some stuff that wasn't necessarily, like, illegal or against the rules of baseball... Or if it was, baseball looked the other way because they're like, oh yeah, the ratings are getting better. And now, (laughs) everyone's being all like high and mighty and saying that they don't deserve to be in the Hall of Fame because of a, quote, character clause. That it's only been Uh used against people before steroids. It's only been used in two other occasions against Shoeless Joe Jackson and Pete Rose, who both got, like, exposed for betting on games in which they were playing. Which feels a little bit different Mm. than working to enhance your ability to do the thing that you're getting paid to do. Anyways, there's my baseball rant's over. (laughs) I think we... (laughs) Okay, we need to move on. So why don't you go ahead and read our scripture passage for us. This is 2 Samuel, chapter 23, verses 1 through 7 from the Common English Bible. These are David's last words. 
This is the declaration of Jesse's son David, the declaration of a man raised high, a man anointed by the God of Jacob, a man favored by the strong one of Israel. The Lord's Spirit speaks through me. His word is on my tongue. Israel's God has spoken. Israel's rock said to me, Whoever rules rightly over people, whoever rules in the fear of God, is like the light of sunrise on a morning with no clouds, like the bright gleam after the rain that brings grass from the ground. Yes, my house is this way with God. He has made an eternal covenant with me, laid out and secure in every detail. Yes, he provides every one of my victories and brings my every desire to pass. But despicable people are like thorns, all of them good for nothing, because they can't be carried by hand. No one can touch them, except with iron bar or the shaft of a spear. They must be burned up with fire right on the spot. Great. Thanks, Seth. So, tell me what stood out to you. Okay, the ending stands out to me because while I'm sure I've read this before that was not where I thought it was going when I started you get this beautiful line that whoever rules in the fear of God is like the light of sunrise and then it ends with despicable people are like thorns they must be burned up with fire right on the spot I was like oh okay yeah, a little bit of a contrast there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think the, the setting of this, I'm, I'm not going to get too much into the context of Second Samuel. I mean, but here you get a lot of the context in this opening phrase, right? These are David's last words. Yeah. So you have David, the, I think, the person for whom until Jesus, the title King of Kings was reserved in Israel. And here is with his dying breath, these are the words that he utters. And it is such an abrupt transition from this beautiful imagery to stuff that's really, I like that word, like kind of vindictive. You know? Yeah. yeah. What might make it so shocking to me is that, like, I think fairly highly of David, even knowing some of his character flaws. Like, I still kind of have some esteem for him. And I think that might be because of the way that the text talks about him in general. Like, like just like he talked about, like, he, he is kind of Israel's one best king. Mm. Not that he's perfect, but he certainly seems to be the best one. And then we get this, like, right at the end of his life. You're right. He's, he's like... He's like real bitter. It didn't seem like the note that I thought he would go out on. But the more that I think about it, maybe it is more, maybe it is <laughs> yeah. more applicable than I thought. Yeah, and that's the, the thing that actually stood out to me about this passage, Seth, most strongly. It's thinking about these kind of big picture, overarching summary statements that David makes. And asking myself, does this actually reflect the reality of David's life in this story? <laughs> you know? Like, I'm especially thinking about, you know, 
whoever rules rightly over people rules in the fear of God. Yes, my house is this way with God. It's God provides every one of my victories and brings my every desire to pass. I'm like, David's story has so much more nuance than that. (laughs) And maybe fitting for him to look back on his own life and reflect in that way. Or for whoever's writing and compiling these stories about him in, in maybe a more favorable light to to do the same, to look back that way. But it also isn't the whole story. And if, you know, if we're talking about the righteous leader having everything that they want and need and the others needing to die, to be burned in the fire right away... Even if David feels vindicated in these moments, he's still dying. These are his literal last words, <laughs> according to the text. Yeah. And so it's another contrast of, oh man, look how sure and stable God has made things for me. And also, I'm your like first king that hasn't royally screwed up, no pun intended. And I'm dying, so good luck with that. <laughs> Doesn't it feel like there's this disconnect for you i don't know that's that's what i picked up on i was like man this is not all of david's story yeah i agree with that completely it seems like i was saying before a little it seems like i was kind of coming to the realization before that actually the end when he's kind of like shouting down his his enemies or like these despicable people that might be the most truthful part of this whole decree or declaration. Yeah, I mean, we have a king who abused his power to sexually take advantage of, to use a euphemism for what happened uh, to Bathsheba, and then used his power to then murder her husband and you know, caused so much infighting in his family and just all these one thing after another that just was truly reflective of the human experience i would say of not being solely good or solely bad but also not reflective of i think israel's and oftentimes our memories of david like you said where we hold him in such high esteem that at times, with a closer reading of his story, feels a little unwarranted. I credit Dr. Emerson Powery with this idea, but he remarked to me one time that the way that most people think about David is the way that David's portrayed in First Kings, not the way that he's portrayed in Samuel. Hmm. Like he's portrayed like much better, and that's how we tend to think about David. I think he's right, at least for me. I only speak about myself. But in in First and Second Samuel, he's he's just so real. Here's a question for you: Do you think that these last words of David are human, in so far as they kind of mix our desire to be remembered positively with the way that we know we've acted in our lives i don't know i'm just thinking of like the the first part is like look at all look how great my life is yeah like this is how i should be remembered 
and then at the end if it isn't i don't know a realization like like these despicable people yeah like make I mean, me honestly make me angry i don't know yeah as you ask that question i think about a more recent ruler in our context who consistently said well what about this what about this and never took responsibility for his own actions but simply justified them because in his mind at least someone else was doing something worse and this particular leader Mm -hmm. was not the only person to ever have communicated in that style and fashion but felt like he used it on a scale and on a platform that just felt new and maybe that's part of part of what it is here is we are so eager to kind of like we said before portray things as totally good or totally bad right like i mean this part of scripture is full of that some kings of israel get like two verses <laughs> and yeah. one of them is just and he did was e- what was evil in the sight of the lord and then they're just kind of brushed aside <laughs> i'm like can you imagine your whole life being recounted that way but seth this is actually a really good question that you ask that transitions to i think what a point of this passage is because there is a clear disconnect here between at least that i'm reading between memory and remembering And I'll explain what I mean by that. I think about memory as the ways that we hold on to what has happened in our past. So it's the stories we tell ourselves, the family histories, the histories of our nation of origin, how we came to a certain place in our lives, or maybe for you and I or others, you know, thinking about a story of a calling to ministry, that kind of thing, right? The memories that are largely constructed, right? They have source material of our actual experience, but the ways that we craft those things are intentional. They're not necessarily dishonest, but they're not necessarily the same thing as a, as we would understand it today, like a historical recounting of the same information. The story we tell about an event might not be the same as the event itself. And so my question for us in thinking about a point of this passage is about that distinction and how does our memory, those constructions of what's happened to us, how does that help or hinder our ability to actually remember? Does that distinction and that question kind of make sense? It all all makes sense. So when I think about the, maybe the risks is is the way I'm thinking about it. When I think about the risks of crafting and creating these memories as opposed to kind of the actual events themselves what strikes me is the way that it can become one-sided that is that our memories can become one-sided like we we only remember certain parts and we push out Hmm. you know things things that might be less flattering in the memory or, or in reverse, like we remember something that's like kind of embarrassing. And then we remember like all of the bad, right? Like, oh, it was embarrassing. And we don't remember the good that kind of surrounds it or might be mixed in. So in that way, I think it can, it can be a hindrance in that it, 
it can focus us too narrowly on this individual moment, this little event, and we can lose some of the broader context of what's happening. On the flip side, I think the positive can be that these events are remembered at all. Like, I think the the risk is that they get lost completely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm just thinking of, like, modern historiography. Like, you're a much better person to talk about this than I am. But the, there's there's been a shift, like, from from kind of sources that are done from the dominant perspective. Usually, like, white, mm-hmm. old white men writing about history, right? Even if they're living it, you know, concurrently yeah. to, like, perspectives that, that were then on the margins. Uh, but, but my fear is just that if all we have is the one old white man writing that history, well, it's, a, it's at least better for me because we at least have an account yes. than, having it, than having it lost completely. I think I think that's really well said, Seth, because it is true that for a while, access to again our frameworks and constructs of I'd say historical scholarship, the, the work of recreating or preserving the stories of our time and times of the past was so limited because of the way our society was ordered and a lot of times the ways our educational institutions were anchored and rooted and so thoroughly infused with white supremacy and patriarchy and and all of that but i think you're also picking up on something that's really really important here that our our memory sometimes gets in the way of our ability to remember when we're so insistent that the that our memory is the way things happened i think it's worth at least tangentially mentioning the conversation and the cultural outrage and the fear-mongering that's happening around critical race theory and things like the 1619 project that are trying to do really the work that you're alluding to Seth of providing a perspective and a story that is not the dominant one about this country's history and I don't want to get into the weeds with that but I think that is that is a really representative of the problem here that we're identifying with David's memory of his own life is this insistence on preserving a certain memory is causing not just certain stories, but certain people to be overlooked and disregarded and forgotten. But more personally for me, actually, Seth, one of the things I think about is experiencing in the United Methodist Church. Because there are a lot of parts of our history that are not good. I mean, thinking about where I am in Virginia, too, most of the Methodist church expressions in our area that have been around for long enough were part of the Methodist Episcopal Church South, which literally split from the Methodist Episcopal Church Mm -hmm. to preserve the institution of slavery. And later on, when those institutions kind of reconvened to compromise about the inclusion of black people in their churches, they created a single central conference. So black churches would not Mm -hmm. conference and convene. Representatives from those churches, kin in Christ, would not convene and conference with our white members, even from Mm -hmm. around the world, Mm -hmm. unless they were 
included at general conference, which is a meeting with everybody. But even Mm -hmm. if you had a church that was a block away as a church that I experienced in DC, if you had a Methodist Episcopal church, South church away from a Methodist church, that is that is a historically black congregation for a while, those churches, even though they were a block of way, would not have associated with each other, mm-hmm. even the official mm-hmm. denominational structure. And so we look back at those stories and we want to say, we're a church for everyone. We're working towards racial justice. We're working towards the inclusion of all people. And we can't start to do that without reckoning with those experiences from our past, too. Mm-hmm. Because, again, it's not just about telling an incomplete story. It's when telling that incomplete story causes harm to others, causes them to be forgotten. That's when it gets in the way of, I would say, faithful discipleship. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, let me make sure I'm understanding you right. Some of the problem that we see David experiencing in the text is the difference between his memory or maybe the way he wants to be remembered and what he actually did. And then there's a parallel to today that people have a narrative that they've constructed about the United States, for example, Mm -hmm. that's then also different than the actual history of, of this country. Was that a good, was that a decent summary? I think so. And I mean, it goes back to what you were saying. It's not that the story that is told is incorrect. It's simply not complete. Yeah. It may be incorrect in ways, but it is also real in that it is a people's story. Hmm. But when it's soaked in domination and exploitation and oppression and it's not highlighted, when it's soaked in sexual violence and murder... And exploitation of power, like David's story is, and that's not highlighted, you're not getting the whole thing, even if what you're getting might technically be correct or correct in some ways. But I think, too, Seth, of the, I guess I could say, if you can call a TED Talk legendary, I would call it legendary. But the TED Talk from uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie about the danger of a single story how stories are powerful but stories that resist the simultaneous tellings of parallel or contradictory or other stories Mm -hmm. those stories become so dangerous because we become more aligned with and allied to this concept and this construct rather than the people around us especially the people that that story might throw under the bus that's a particularly helpful way for me to think about the Gospels. Mm-hmm. I was hoping we'd land here. <laughs> Say more. Yeah. Well, I feel like we. I feel like we've been moving that way the entire time. Kind of the difference between a way that people construct memories and the and the memories themselves. Kind of the gap is the central kind of hermeneutical key to the gospels i think absolutely because if not then you're just trying to 
put all these puzzles together of, well, this one says that Jesus didn't go to Jerusalem until the time of his death, but this one says that he was in Jerusalem once a year for all three years of his public ministry. This one says he went to this city before this city and healed a blind person in this city, but this, you know, you're doing all this stuff to try to force together a narrative that's not helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And your point earlier about how they can all be true and they they can all be true accounts right factually even factually accurate if i can say it that way yeah but not not accurate in terms of their historical right accuracy yeah and and that's a real important distinction here seth is we are doing truth and truth right right yeah well it's, it's it's important distinction though to say we're doing ourselves a huge disservice when we're going to the scriptures looking for what we would consider historically accurate accounts of what happened because we're placing modern expectations on a text that is all but modern. And as I know our professor and friend Brian Smith has said before too, just because the Bible is not historically accurate does not mean it is any less true. But at the same time, we need to be mindful of how we buy into certain stories without allowing contradictory or suppressed voices to come in alongside that too. Cause we get really caught up. That's when a lot of harm can be done. Yeah. And it's interesting for me to bring it back to our, to our old Testament text, the way that David may want to be shaping that single story hmm. right at the end. Yeah. Or maybe I should say the way that the author shapes that story hmm. about David right at the end. Because right? again, there's there's this, this distance between the memory and the actual historical account. I think we need to be careful. We need to be careful about how we construct our stories. Can I pray for us that we can do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be awesome. Great. So, Seth, on this Christ the King Sunday, well, almost Sunday when this episode comes out, (laughs) we pray with me. I would love that. God of our memories, sometimes we remember, we put together again the past in a way that does not reflect reality. Help us to remember with courage, integrity, and humility so we can journey with you and each other in whole, healed relationships. Mindful of the many names by which your children cry out to you from all over the world, I pray in the name of the ruler of all, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Next week, we're moving into lectionary year C. Year C? (laughs) Which brings us... Stories from the Gospel of Luke. So get ready for some apocalyptic stories, texts, images next week. But Jonathan, thanks for walking us through that story. And thanks for helping us think about why we need multiple stories too. Thanks for helping me tell them. bit of text that we have it seems like the end gets at maybe someone's true feelings Hmm.
But the I see the, your true <laughs> colors shining through. Sorry. That was good. Was that Phil Collins? Admittedly, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> You'll okay. be in my heart. Tarzan in my heart. <laughs> okay, he went, we gotta move on. He went really hard. Man. On, in Tarzan. Hot take, Tarzan, best Disney soundtrack of all time. Oh, yeah. Like, I feel like it's already about a, a man who lives in the jungle and is, like, raised by animals. Like, it didn't need a soundtrack that was that wild. That's so good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So good. I mean, every song, just a straight banger. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> 